0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This is The Roy Green Show
0: podcast. So we have a new RCMP commissioner, a woman commissioner, Brenda Lucky. And joining us on the show is former RCMP Corporal Catherine Galliford. She was the face of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for a number of years and uh, then she became really the initial prominent woman within the force to publicly state that she had been the victim of sexual misbehavior sexual attack by her fellow officers she settled out of court and we're always it's always a pleasure of being to speak with her Catherine, how are you i'm fine how are you i'm doing great i'm doing great what do you think about the idea i mean was it was it was it the only way for the for for the government to go to appoint a, a woman as commissioner of the of the RCMP.
2: I don't think it was the only way. Um, I do find it fascinating that the day before she was announced as the commissioner, I was getting phone calls from serving members of the RCMP and retired members who were going. They were saying, "Oh, she only got selected because she's a woman." And my response to that is. How many women, not just within the organization of the RCMP, but worldwide, how many women have not been promoted mm-hmm. because they're a woman? And I look at her, and I look at her record, and she, when she graduated from training, she's senior to me in service, and she hit the ground running in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, and Manitoba our three biggest contract provinces, others in B.C. So she's been around the block a few times. So you know what? Maybe it is time to bring in somebody who has a different perspective on things, the way mm-hmm. they run in the RCMP.
0: Yep. And those who say she was only appointed because she's a woman are people who haven't been paying attention for the last quite a few years. To what's been headline news about what's wrong within the RCMP?
2: You, well, the headline news the headline news is that it's a it's not a safe environment mm-hmm. for women to be in and what I would like to see her do is first of all go into that position as commissioner and choose her own inner circle because right now what she has is the old boys club and so she needs to surround herself with safe people that she trusts And then what I would like to see her do is start getting rid of the real bad apples within the RCMP, not the people who complain about harassment and bullying and sexual abuse. I want to see her get rid of the offenders.
0: And there are still many women who are waiting for their issues and complaints to be settled, and they continue to be severely strained Do you expect that she will be doing exactly what you're suggesting and then thereby provide the former officers and civil employees, civilian employees in the RCMP, women who are still waiting for their cases to be finally adjudicated, is it going to provide them with a sense of, well, relief?
2: I don't know. Because she might end up doing what our last commissioner did and put new shiny words on paper. And make it look really good to the government of the day but i i'm hoping that she will be decisive enough to take action and start actually punishing the abusers with, within that environment so people can actually go to work and do their jobs that's all they want to do they don't want to get involved in politics they want they don't want to be bullied they don't want to be sexually harassed or abused or exploited they just want to do their jobs. And so I'm hoping that the new commissioner will be able to create um, somewhat more of a safe environment. So I'm I'm actually hoping that she'll be a leader.
0: Yeah, Catherine, thank you so much for the time. It's always good talking to you.
2: You're very welcome. Take care.
0: You too. Catherine Galliford, former corporal, former face of the RCMP, on what her beliefs are that the new commissioner has to take on as initial responsibility. And I think that she needs to surround herself with senior staff she trusts. It's key. The RCMP has a lot of issues to deal with, and public relations releases aren't going to do the job.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML.
0: Conference Board of Canada, uh, information that we got yesterday, the uh, think tank says that If NAFTA were to disappear, and Mr. Trump doesn't seem to be terribly enthusiastic about leaving things as they are or maybe leaving it in place at all. We just don't know with the American president what he is or isn't going to decide. But the Conference Board of Canada says that if NAFTA disappears, there'd be an immediate job loss of about 85,000 in the first year. 85,000 jobs in Canada in the first year. There'd be another 6,000 or so. In the second year, and that's the best case scenario after NAFTA would disappear. Um, there would also be some significant monies involved. Exports would fall by just about $9 billion in merchandise, and uh, import prices would be higher. That would also be in the billions of dollars. So, and they're going into the eighth round of negotiating over NAFTA. Nobody expected it to go that far, but it is. And uh, I don't know when Donald Trump is going to become irritated with the whole thing and say, get rid of it, because they're heading into their midterm election, and that certainly for many in the so-called Rust Belt states would be incentive to perhaps vote for their Republican candidate. There's so many factors at play. Joining me on the program uh, to speak on, oh, there's also the, uh, the, of course, the steel and uh, aluminum tariffs have been not uh, green-lighted forever, but there continue to be, or at least there aren't, there aren't going to be, uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum entering the United States from Canada. But that's not forever. I'm sure that NAFTA will have an influence on all of this. Joining me on the program is Karen Pullman. She's the senior vice president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the number one employers in Canada. Canada's small and medium-sized businesses um, are responsible for most of the jobs that exist in this country. Corinne, thank you very much for the time. Are you, uh, are you alarmed by what the Conference Board of Canada released yesterday?
3: Um,
4: it certainly is alarming, but it's not surprising given how important NAFTA is as a trade agreement for Canada. I mean, over 80% of our trade or approximately 80% of our trade is with the United States. So anything that can jeopardize that trade is going to absolutely have an impact. So those numbers are certainly you know, alarming, but not necessarily, you know, a huge shock to me given the dependence Canada has on the United States as a trading partner.
0: Is it your sense that our federal government is doing everything that it should be doing in order to come out of this with the best possible result for Canada?
4: You know, it's is such an unpredictable scenario to be in. And frankly, I think the Canadians have done uh, a great, a very good job um, trying to manage what is a kind of unmanageable situation in some respects, right? So um, I think that they are staying firm on issues that they think are uh, kind of ridiculous from our perspective and, you know, putting forward, I think, um, I think a pretty brave face given you never know from day to day what's going to happen.
0: Now, what about your members, the small business community, medium and small business community across Canada? They've been through quite a few shocks over the last 12 Mm -hmm. months. They've, uh, they haven't they have really known what shoe was going to drop on them next and from whom and under what circumstance. How are they feeling? What's the level of confidence nationally in the medium and small business community that ni- 2018 will turn out to be a year that they wouldn't look back on as something that was at least somewhat more predictable?
4: Yeah. I, unfortunately, um, there's quite a bit of nervousness about uh, where things are going. NAFTA just being one of the issues, of course, that uh, creates that nervousness. Uh, Layered on top of that, of course, is also the Americans introduced some pretty big tax reform bills that are significantly reducing taxes in the United States. That are going to make Canadian companies even less competitive, um, no matter what happens with the uh, free trade agreement. Layered on top of that, of course, is many uh, policy decisions in Canada that are seemingly aimed at um, small businesses and having an impact on their bottom line. Examples are um, introduction of the minimum wage, a $15 minimum wage in Ontario in such a rapid pace, um, introduction of some tax measures that, um, granted, have been somewhat um, uh, scaled back over the course of the last years by the federal government, but some are still moving forward. And this is causing, certainly, lots of uh, anxiety and nervousness on the part of many small business owners about what happens next. On top of that, we're going to see payroll taxes start going up in 2019. Uh, CPP is going to start going up, of course, the minimum wage in Ontario, uh, maybe going up to $15 next year. So those are all things that uh, are keeping, I think, many small business owners up late
0: at night. Right, And it certainly will have an impact on jobs, and it's the small business uh, owners, at least we saw that with the minimum wage issue a few weeks ago, it's the small business owners who unfairly had the finger pointed at them and by politicians.
4: That's right. And, you know, it's it's quite unfair when you think about the fact that, yes, minimum wage goes up, uh, but as a result, uh, governments actually make more money because they do tax minimum wage. And so, Uh, While businesses are paying more, what goes in the pockets of of, uh, Ontario uh, employees hopefully goes up a little bit too, but some of that is also going to the Ontario government. And so those are things that people don't think about. So if we're really wanting to alleviate poverty, sometimes there are other measures that will do more to keep money in the pocket of those employees than simply always increasing minimum wage.
0: Is there a sector particularly within the small business community that is most nervous about what's going on now? Is there a sector that is going to be, uh, or one or two sectors that are particularly going to be impacted by whatever happens?
4: Yeah, I mean, traditionally, of course, manufacturing has had a rough decade, right? Um, And certainly they are heavily uh, involved in trade as a result. But, you know, trade has become much more service-oriented too over the course of the last several, uh, several years. So those types of businesses may also be affected by what's happening. Um, but then when you talk about things like minimum wage, that has a bigger impact on uh, the retail sector, hospitality, and that kind of thing that tends to employ people who are starting out in the in the working world. So it's hard. there isn't really one sector that's going to be hit directly. They're all being hit in different ways by different measures that are, I think, coming at us right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if you want economic growth, there has to be a sense of confidence. People are not going to grow. People are not going to expand. People are not going to take, uh, really, uh, almost... Economically death-defying risks, uh, if there isn't some level of uh, of confidence that they can that they can uh, believe in.
4: Absolutely true, and you know I think the economy is doing okay right now, which is is good news. But think how much better it could be doing if there was that confidence. Yep. And there is a lot of nervousness still in the business community. And I do believe a lot of people are holding off from hiring or they're holding off from investing until they kind of get a better lay of what's going to happen over the course of the next mm-hmm. six to months to a year.
0: I, I spoke with uh, Dan Kelly about this uh, issue. I want to ask you one more question. And, and it was about uh, Canadian businesses that have decided or business owners who've decided, look, I just can't take this roller coaster any longer. I don't know what's coming down the road. We're being so significantly impacted by whatever the United States does. Now the Americans have dropped their their tax uh, reality, Mm -hmm. made it far more advantageous to be in the U.S. So I'm just going to put the padlock on my front door, take down the sign, and move across the border. Have you seen uh, any appreciable movement in that direction?
4: I mean, I think there's definitely more and more um, looking at that as an option. I mean, it's, 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 we hear about it anecdotally, um, that they are exploring uh, what the opportunities are. You have to remember, there are quite a number of smaller, medium-sized companies that may have a satellite office in the United States because they do trade there, and it's not that hard for them to potentially move their head office into that country if they feel it's more advantageous. Layered on top of that, of course, there are a lot of people who want to exit their business. They're just feeling, you know what, I wanted to retire anyways in a few years. I'm just going to get out now and shut it down. And so those are the dangers because along with those go the jobs and the investment in this country. And that's uh, what we we fear.
0: Yeah, And we're not big players in on the international economic scene.
4: No. No, as much as we like to think we are, we're, we're a small country.
0: Yeah. Corinne, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. And uh, we will stay in touch with you.
4: My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good afternoon.
0: Bye-bye. Corinne Pullman, Senior Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening
1: to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: Jazzball Atwal is a name we most of us hadn't heard or hadn't heard for some time before Mr. Trudeau's India trip. Well, you know what happened when Mr. Atwall showed up. He held a bit of a, I guess, I don't know, it was a news conference or made some announcements this week, which left significant questions for Justin Trudeau to answer. Like Atwal revealing he'd been receiving visas to travel to India prior to Mr. Trudeau's trip there. So then why did the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister float the idea that there was an Indian conspiracy behind Atwal's appearance in India and then drag a nameless bureaucrat into the whole issue? Scott Newark is back with us, former Alberta Crown Attorney, former Executive Director, of the Canadian Police Association, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. You have a lot of questions. Scott, what's, uh, what's the most pressing question that the Atwal appearance has raised for you?
5: Well, I think uh, probably the contradiction in the stories that have been put out, uh, as you uh, pointed out in your introduction, um, this is literally a guy that got recommended uh, to the uh, uh, Global Affairs, Foreign Affairs, by his local MP, Jasper Atwal, sorry, uh, by uh, Randeep Sarai, um, to attend one of the official events. And um, it wasn't that there was a security risk here. There was an optics uh, risk. And it, it appears almost certain now that Mr. Sarai, uh, who knew Atwal's uh, terrorist uh, conviction, Sikh terrorism conviction background, didn't tell the foreign affairs people about it. And they, who have their own intelligence bureau, uh didn't bother to identify or didn't uh, have the uh capability to identify who he actually was and then uh, he attended the first event in uh, Mumbai and these photos were taken of him with Sophie Grégoire Trudeau and Minister Sohi immigration minister uh sorry uh, infrastructure minister Sohi who was attending which got somehow leaked to the media and all hell broke loose and as you say thereafter as opposed to simply saying you know sorry we should have uh, considered the optics of this They came out with this bizarre story, and no one really knows exactly whether it was designed by the prime minister's office. And the nameless bureaucrat you refer to is Daniel Jean, who is the uh, prime minister's national security advisor, who's a career bureaucrat. And guess what department he's worked in his entire career? Foreign affairs. And he came out with this, you know, truly strange uh, conspiracy theory that somehow the union government had uh, this plot to bring this guy to... uh, India to embarrass Trudeau. And as you say in the uh, media uh, conference, and it was reported earlier, uh, in fact, this guy had a visa. He'd uh, visited India twice before in the preceding year. So uh, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And you've got these conflicting stories. what I find the most alarming about it all, uh, of all, uh, Roy, is the fact that it appears either knowingly um, uh, or out of complete ignorance uh, the Prime Minister's office ends up putting their national security advisor to do a supposedly anonymous phone briefing of the media and to mislead the media and thereby Canadians about this Indian conspiracy theory. And now they're caught, and this guy, Otwal, holds his press conference to say, Look, you know, I wasn't a security concerned. The Indian government had let me in. He's, he apologized for any embarrassment he may have caused. But I think Canadians are once again becoming concerned about the uh, ignorance and arrogance that's being displayed by this uh, liberal government.
0: Well, you know, how can you be so wrong so many times? Why wouldn't you know if you have your own intelligence department? Why wouldn't you know if you're going to kick up a stink about Atwal, if you're going to make it so that the nameless, faceless Daniel Jean stands up and essentially uh, puts forward the thesis of uh, Indian conspiracy to embarrass Trudeau by having Atwal present, How do you not know that the guy's been able to get in and out of India with Indian permission before Trudeau's trip? You must be aware of these things, or at least not embarrass embarrass yourself even more by putting forward these crazy theories.
5: Which have been completely rebutted by the Indian government. Exactly. Uh, That's where I say I think it comes as a combination of uh, ignorance and not properly... Uh, you know, uh, doing the uh, the work in advance to identify who this guy was, which is the reason why uh, this uh, MP uh, Randeep Sarai that withheld the information appears to have withheld the information. Yeah. but you know what Scott got kicked out as the chair of the caucus. yeah, Adwall is
0: Adwell was not an unknown quantity. It's not as though they were right. there's not as though they can say, well, we really didn't know anything about this guy. We hadn't heard about him. We knew just some a few things, and this is what yeah. troubled us. his his presence on the radar. May have not been particularly high in 2017, although there was an issue about automobiles and fraud. But uh, he certainly had uh, visibility on the radar, and so there was no excuse for them not knowing what he was about.
5: Well, two things. This guy Sarai, uh, the uh, the MP from British Columbia... When he was uh, he first spoke about it, yeah. uh, you'll uh, recall that he didn't say that it was. Oh, I didn't know about him. He said it was an error in judgment. In other words, he did know about him. Yeah. Okay, he was perceived to be a local influencer in the Sikh community. Mm-hmm. So this guy, and understandably, that's how politicians do business, decided to you know do him a, a potential favor, but obviously didn't identify his background, and the people at Global Affairs. Uh, for, for whatever reason, and, you know, they might want to... And I've got, I've got 15
0: seconds, guy. Scott.
5: Didn't identify who he was.
0: Yeah, Many questions. We thought maybe this one would have been put to bed, but apparently not.
5: I don't think so. I no. think there will be more there. And as I say, having your national security advisor yeah. come out with yeah. this bizarre story, yeah. obviously, I mean, what is Mr. Trudeau going to do about it? Got to go, buddy. Were they part of it, or what is he going to do? Yes, sir. Got go. to go. To be
0: removed. Thank you, Scott. All right, Roy. Talk to you again. Scott, New York.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: In British Columbia, the anti-pipeline issue continues. And uh, there was a temporary injunction granted to Kinder Morgan to uh, stop protests against its construction of uh, the Trans Mountain Extension, which is going to triple the amount of oil, making its way from Alberta to Burnaby, British Columbia, And uh, in Vancouver, I heard yesterday and read yesterday that some 7,000 anti-pipeline demonstrators were projected to uh, be in the city. I don't know if that's still the number or if that's still the situation. Kyle Benning joins us from CKNW in uh, Vancouver, our chorus radio station, which carries this radio program, which we greatly appreciate. Kyle, thank you very much uh, for the time. And what can you tell the people across Canada about what's happening first of all on Burnaby Mountain, and then tell us what's going on in in Vancouver.
6: Well, good afternoon, Roy. Uh, Right now in Burnaby, some uh, thousands of people are set up nearby where the Kinder Morgan uh, sort of headquarters in Burnaby is. Uh, As you mentioned earlier, there was an estimation of 7,000. Our uh, reporters on the ground say closer to 2,000. So they're gathered a few blocks away from Kinder Morgan headquarters right now at a local elementary school there uh, where they've marched through the streets of Burnaby, a lot of uh, high police presence. And they're uh, making their voices heard against this project. And later this afternoon in downtown Vancouver, some uh, pro-pipeline activists are going to be holding their own protest uh, within the downtown core.
0: And some of them have come from uh, Alberta.
6: That's right. Yeah. So the group that's organizing it say they're busing people in from Calgary and Red Deer to take part in this protest. Of course, uh, there's been not only between uh, Albertans and British Columbians, but also the governments have been sort of at each other over this issue as well. Uh, so Albertans are being in into downtown Vancouver to make their voices heard.
0: So how much activity is there going to be in downtown Vancouver?
6: In downtown Vancouver, it's, uh, it's, too soon to say, but uh, we're estimating pr- probably hundreds of people taking part in this protest. Uh, we've heard from uh, organizers yesterday about uh, just making the voices heard and making sure Albertans are are heard in this dispute, uh, but uh, no no idea of how many people will be showing up uh, later this afternoon.
0: So the bigger number is in Burnaby?
6: That's how it sounds so far. Certainly,
0: yeah. Uh, is it expected that the Vancouver situation is going to be re- peace- peaceful? And what are the chances of uh, of it being less than peaceful moving forward in Burnaby? Uh,
6: from what it sounds like, it's been pretty peaceful in Burnaby so far. There, as I mentioned, a, a large police presence is there. And um, as you mentioned, that court injunction was in place yesterday, the interim court injunction. So organizers are trying to make sure everyone's following the rules and staying within the bounds of the law and uh, sort of ushering people away from the Kinder Morgan entrance. Uh, one thing that did come up earlier this week, six people have been arrested uh, because of protests near uh, Burnaby Mountain at the uh, Kinder Morgan headquarters. Hmm. Um, but uh, if anything, I believe that the protest within the downtown core has a chance of becoming a little bit more ruthless, maybe uh, a little bit higher tempered, just because uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some uh, anti-pipeline protesters show up at that one as well.
0: Yeah, and you never know what passersby are going to do, whether or not they'll take uh, take an active position. Um, you mentioned the political side of things with the Alberta and the British Columbia governments having already uh, taken shots at each other, no, not to sink the ship, but certainly to to be noticed. What are the politicians in British Columbia, and particularly what are the politicians in Vancouver saying?
6: Well, we've heard from uh, some local politicians today and, of course, from the provincial government throughout this whole process uh premier john horgan has mentioned he's going to take it to the court and is hopefully trying to do everything through the court process uh it doesn't sound like he wanted to respond to the wine ban that uh, the alberta government put in place a few weeks back but then rescinded um, locally uh municipal gover- governments seem to be on board with this uh as we know the city of burnaby has been uh one of the key players and it's not issuing permits so kinder morgan can continue work on those terminals Uh, The city of Vancouver has mentioned that they are against this as well. Actually, uh, a councillor is at that protest in Burnaby right now, and uh, several MPs and MLAs have uh, voiced their opinion against it.
0: All right, so we'll watch what goes on, certainly in uh, Vancouver this afternoon. It starts at uh, 2 p.m. or supposed to start at 2 p.m. local time, right?
6: That's right, so 2 p.m. local time. It will be uh, downtown Vancouver, and we'll see how many people turn out for that one.
0: Uh, It's just around the time the Chinese wedding starts at the uh, convention area for the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. That's right. (laughs) Kyle, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for the report. Appreciate it. No problem. Chat soon, Roy. Bye-bye. Kyle Benning from CKNW Radio in Vancouver.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML.
0: Vivian Krause is back with us on The Roy Green Show, and we're back to the issue of... What's that? Hi, Roy. Hi, Vivian. I don't know. Somebody, Several people were talking to me at the same time. Uh... Vivian Krause back with us to talk about the pipeline issue as things in this country are heating up. And uh, Alberta Premier Notley is warned of cutting back on uh, oil to British Columbia from Alberta if BC moves independently to interfere with pipeline extensions. And uh, this is is not all Canadian. The Americans have a lot of influence here. Vivian, uh, can you just take us back and give us the fundamentals, please, on uh, how the United States is affecting the pipeline discussion and debate in this country.
3: Well, you just nailed it, Roy. You know, the, the central issue here, the key thing is the U.S. monopoly on our oil. You see, right now, because we don't have pipelines to, to the ocean, we can't get our oil to ports. Um, so we're forced, the oil producers in Western Canada are forced to sell into the U.S. market. And so it's a buyers market and um, what's happening is that the the US buyers can buy oil from Canada cheaper than they can from any other country. Uh Scotiabank just came out with a report a couple of weeks ago. They estimated that Canada has lost out on 117 billion dollars because we aren't getting international prices for our oil and the reason for that is because we can't we can't get it to overseas markets because we don't have the pipelines. That's the whole reason that industry and government wanted to build these pipelines in the first place was so that we could get better prices and also so we could increase the volume of oil that we sell. What's been happening, of course, is that for 20 years now, a group of American charitable foundations have been funding the environmental movement. And now, in the name of protecting the environment, they are blocking the pipelines. So whether that was their explicit intention from the get-go or not, The reality is that by blocking these pipelines, they are continuing the U.S. monopoly on our oil and keeping Canada over a barrel.
0: Now, is our federal government asleep or tacitly approving of what's going on?
3: Well, that's a question for the prime minister. But, you know, one thing I I remember hearing from him uh, a few years ago is that apparently his father, at one point, of course, former prime minister of Canada, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Apparently his father gave him a piece of advice and said, look, you know, three things you've got to get right. It's the relationship with the provinces, the relationship with First Nations, and the relationship with the United States. And, of course, for any prime minister, no matter what party you are, if you're in office, you've, you've got a very difficult choice. You can, either, um, you can either serve Canadian interests and get the best prices possible for Canadian exports, That requires breaking the U.S. monopoly on on oil from Western Canada. As Prime Minister, you can do that, and you can serve Canadian interests, or you can serve the American interests, and allow them to continue to keep Canada over a barrel. That choice is that simple and that difficult. No matter who's in the the Prime Minister's office, that's one of the most difficult decisions that the Prime Minister of Canada is ever going to have to make. You
0: know, we're billions of dollars in debt. Our uh, annual deficit is in the multiples of billions of dollars. The province of Ontario alone, which is uh, now a, uh, and has been for some time, a receiving province as far as transfer payments are concerned, the province of Ontario just announced it's going to be $8 billion in debt this year. So it just seems to be a no-brainer. Here we have, and and I talked about this last time, we have all these tremendous national resources that are available to us as Canadians. The world wants them. It's not as though they're not going to be put to use. It's not as though they're not going to use oil if we don't provide them ours, or natural gas if we don't provide them ours. And yet here we are, and we're we're we're. I don't want to say this, but I'm going to. Give it, no, I won't say it because it's it's not fair. Uh, we're not taking advantage of what's available to us to improve our standard of living, to pr- to improve uh, funding our social programs, our health care. This, the money's right there waiting to be collected and used for the benefit of Canadians what's wrong with that?
3: Well you know this is exactly the issue that we need to be talking about Roy you know I mean if canada if, if if we as Canadians cannot live within our means as a nation if if we can't live within our means and and if we have to go into debt by hundreds of billions of dollars if we can't live within our means with all the abundant incredible natural resources that we have then then something's wrong mm-hmm. right because if any country should be able to do this it's us we have the we have the natural resources
0: and we have and massive that, we have massive amounts yeah. of natural no, resources no, and a small population. population
3: yeah so I think there's something terribly wrong when we are embedding future generations putting the burden of debt on their back you know i it, it, it nothing makes me sicker than than, than you know thinking that what we're what we're stacking on the credit card uh, of our of our children, you know. I, I'm in my 50s. I, I have a daughter who's 25. And what are we doing to these kids? What are what are we just can't let this happen, no. you know? Because eventually that the interest alone. Here's something to think about: the interest alone on our federal debt. That's not even including the provincial or municipal levels. But the interest on our federal debt alone is about 30 billion. It's roughly the same amount, more or less, as what we pay in GST. So imagine that as Canadians all the GST that we pay it doesn't get to go to pay for hospitals or bridges or police forces or our justice system or anything. All that GST is just paying the interest on our debt, not even touching the principal. That's what's so absurd about the situation that we're in and now we have a chance to increase uh, our national revenues by exporting our natural resources. In a, in a responsible, proper way, benefiting the poorest parts of our country, our rural areas, and the First Nations, who are the people in poverty, that we need to help get out of it. And we're letting this opportunity go. Why? Well, it's clear who's benefiting here. It's not Canadians. It's the U.S. interests. And, and those same U.S. interests are the ones that are behind the anti-pipeline activists that are, of course, gathered here in Vancouver today. We're 20 years behind, Roy. We're 20 years and hundreds of millions of dollars behind. But finally, Canadians are starting to wake up and smell the competition, yep. smell the fact that it's American interests that are winning when we don't build these large infrastructure projects. And we've, you know, we're, we are where we are. We've just got to start where we are, uh, increasing Canadians' uh, you know, understanding of the issue. That's why I, re- I really thank you for covering this on your show. And making sure that we get politicians elected who will fight for Canadian interests.
0: We don't need to hear somebody saying budgets will balance themselves because we're seeing the uh, the results of that particular philosophy taking place in front of our eyes now. Vivian, can you hold on? I need to take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk some more.
1: Sure. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: Vivian Krauss is back with us at Fair Questions on Twitter. And she's done the research about the money that's pouring into Canada from Amer- American groups and foundations to fund the – the anti-pipeline protests and you know why so uh vivian i'm sure that i'm sure that you're accused of all sorts of things like being in the hip pocket of the oil industry and 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 feathering your nest at the expense of the environment because personal attack is usually where things go um can you give us an idea about i mean how fairly are you being treated
3: oh you know i i don't even ask that question you know uh you know ron when when i you know when i get uh frustrated sometimes i i think of what my grandparents went through when when they came to this country you know they they were immigrants and they were fleeing persecution in in eastern europe and uh and they they you know my grandfather was a teacher he came here he worked as a as a gardener as a janitor as a carpenter um you know plowed the land and worked as a farmer and it was tough you know and a, in the 20s and 30s it wasn't wasn't easy for people today what are we dealing with it's facebook and twitter mm-hmm. seriously mm-hmm. you know we, we're we're better than this we, we can work hard as canadians and we can make sure that everybody understands the main political and economic issues that our country is facing and, and once i think people have a good understanding of it i think we'll we'll make we'll make good decisions the problem we we have right now is that for so many years we trusted these activists and you know, we're very trusting as Canadians, and nobody bothered to look into who, where the money was coming from. And frankly, I wouldn't have done it either. But I stumbled across this by accident, and that's how I got into it. You know, if I hadn't stumbled across by accident, I'd be just like everybody else, right? But we're, we are where we are, and now we know. You know, when I started this research, you know, eight years ago, I didn't have the answers. I had questions. I didn't have the answers. In fact, I started a blog. I called it Fair Questions because that's all I have. But now we have the answers. In the words of the guy who has been directing this anti-pipeline activism for 10 years, okay, his foundation is called, his organization is Corporate Ethics. His name is Michael Marks. And he said very clearly now, from the very beginning, the campaign strategy was to landlock the crude. He calls it the tar sands crude, but landlock crude from Western Canada, keeping it out of international markets could fetch a high price per barrel. So, you know, there you go. You have it from from the, the individual who's been in charge of all this anti-pipeline activism for a decade. Now, the purpose of it is to keep our most important national export out of overseas markets, okay? So now we know. And I'll tell you, today there's going to be thousands of people, apparently there's 2,000 people in Burnaby, roughly, or something like that, who are uh, against the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And they're no less Canadian than I am. You know, we're, we're all Canadian here, right? But what's happened is that to get them organized, there have been employees at organizations. You know, take the top five organizations. They have more than 500 employees. Tides Canada alone has 225 employees. Now, of course, they are not all working on anti-pipeline activism. But if they want to, you know, leverage the, the team, they've, they've got an awfully big staff to draw, right? So those of us at the pro-pipeline rally, there's going to be maybe hopefully a couple hundred of us. We're 20 years behind, tens of millions of dollars behind. But we are where we are, and all we can do is, you know, onwards.
0: Onwards, let's get smart sure, about let's
3: it. Make sure that Canadians understand what's actually going on. This is about the U.S. monopoly on our oil, it's not about protecting the environment. In fact, stopping these pipelines actually makes things worse because we don't use any less oil. We just use it from countries that produce it by even lower standards. That's all that happens, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm all for, by the way, I'm all for using less oil. We use 1,000 a, a barrels of oil every second as a planet. That's an enormous amount of oil. I'm sure we could use it better, more efficiently with, you know, higher fuel efficiency, efficiency standards for our vehicles, et cetera. So I'm all for using our oil better. But if we're going to use oil, let's make sure it's from our country first.
0: Yep, and you know what we've managed to do is pit Canadians against Canadians. We now have uh, British Columbia and Alberta uh, swinging at each other. Maybe the swinging is going to become more intense, particularly if uh, resources, uh, oil resources, are reduced or cut off by Alberta because of uh, their interpretation of what British Columbia may have undertaken. It gets really—it has the potential to yeah. to to, to, well, to really spin out of control.
3: This, 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 this little spat between BC and Alberta, this is really silly, you know. Mm-hmm. An eye for an eye and we'll all be blind, you know. Two wrongs don't make a right. We, we need to, we need to work together as Canadians, not fight each other. The Americans are laughing all the way to the bank on this one, right? What we need to do, here's what we need to do. We need to reestablish what the truth is here. We need to set the record straight on the true GHG emissions of Canadian oil. Because the trouble is, right, that for years the industry and the Alberta government let the activists say things that weren't true. And they've established this idea that Alberta oil is terribly much dirtier than, than conventional crude from any other country. Well, it's true that the, the, the GHG emissions from the oil sands, from some of them, not all, but from some of them, it is a bit higher. But it's nowhere near as high as the envi- activists have been saying. They've been saying that it's three or four times higher. It's not that would be 300 or 400% higher. It's like 10 to 20%. So the activists have been grossly exaggerating the true environmental impacts, and now we know why. It's because if they would tell the whole truth about Alberta oil, they would not have a sound case for their campaign to landlock our crude and keep Canada over a barrel.
0: There's much no more... No wonder they
3: have to say things that aren't true. If they would tell yeah. the whole truth, they wouldn't have a case for their campaign.
0: There is so much more to be said, and so much more to be understood, and so much more dialogue that needs to take place in this country, and keep in mind, keep the understanding in place, as Vivian has told us, the Americans are funding the anti-pipeline activists and protests, and they're not doing it because they care about the planet, they're doing it because it's financially advantageous. Vivian, yeah. Vivian. i got
3: to get to the C bus here, Roy, so I can get to that rally. <laughs> That's why i got to let
0: you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for your time with us. All the best.
3: Okay. Bye Bye-bye. Now.
0: Vivian Krause, at uh, Fair Questions on Twitter. And thanks to Kyle Benning from CKNW for providing the, uh, the scene setter for us.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML.
0: Doing business in Canada and in the United States. What did Americans tell one of Canada's most successful business entrepreneurs about operating in the U.S. and selling his products in America? Ron Foxcroft joins me, chairman of Fox 40 Industries. And uh, the Fox 40 whistle, of course, is the most famous whistle in the world. And it's Ron's invention. And everybody said to him, what the hell are you doing? Who's going to buy a whistle? So, Mr. Foxcroft, thank you for taking the time, Fox what do Canadians need to know about doing business which involves the united states it's a it's a it's a dominating conversation now internationally between our two countries. What do we need to understand
7: well described Roy it has dominated lately with uh, all the talk. I never want to diminish all the talk about the uh, the tariffs and the and the free trade discussions because Roy that's going to affect all of us uh as uh, as exporters but uh you know, when, uh, when we started many years ago with, with the Whistle, of course, we've added 250 products to Fox 40, um, one of my engineers said to me, you know, you better go to the big. And, and um, I sub- subscribe to the theory, uh, it's, you're given two ears and one mouth used proportionately. So I asked, what is the big? And they said, stupid, export. You've got to Export. Canada is a wonderful country, but if you just decide to uh manufacture a product and sell in Canada, you're not going to pay for your blueprint. So, obviously, we uh we went to the United States and and I was quite familiar as you know in in operating in the United States because I was a basketball referee down there. So, I was very comfortable. I I loved loved my American friends. So we started doing business down there, Roy, and um, very early, we received some uh, uh, very, very good advice. Uh, a top official in the U.S. government said to me, if you're going to do business with us in the United States and, and enjoy our revenue, then you better love us or leave us. And I paused and asked the question uh can you tell me exactly what that means? And they said, well, you better invest as much into the United States as you take out. And, Roy, that's exactly what you should do culturally in dealing with the United States. So we invested. We bought property. We bought a plant. We operated an office. And uh, delightfully, we hired very good U.S. Uh, em- employees. Who who have just been fantastic. Although we're neighbors side by side, there are cult- cultural differences. So the first thing that you have to understand is invest, uh, put more in than you take out, and that's been very very successful. The other thing too, Roy, uh, being Canadian and um, trading internationally is a really big advantage. People come to us and they describe Canadians and they say, you know, Canadians are honest, they're reliable, uh, they have integrity, uh, they they are innovative and uh, they're sensitive leaders. However, in in dealing with United States, it sort of helps to be American, and we get a lot of calls in, into our U.S. office from really good. U.S. customers, and they say, uh, "Are you American?" Well, Roy, we operate in the states, we hire American workers, and the answer is yes. And and there just seems to be uh, an an acceptable mood if we can say yes, we we love you.
0: So there's a there's a pragmatic side of things here that says. If you want to work with them, you have to understand them, and to understand them, you've got to listen to them. And when they listen, when you listen to them, you'll understand what it is they want you to do. And if you do that, there's profitability involved for everybody.
7: Yes, and you know culturally too, um, Americans love entrepreneurs. Americans love people that make good products that are innovative, and make a profit. Uh, Sometimes, Roy, and I have to say this on your show, it's not always like that in Canada. In Canada, in, in sometimes, in some areas, there's a feeling, there's a mood uh, of, of entitlement. And, and there's almost a feeling that uh, you know, uh, the entrepreneurs, they're making the money off the backs of the people and they're buying sailboats and they're going down to the Caribbean and so on and so on. But in the United States, they love hard-working uh, entrepreneurs that are prepared to invest and prepared to put in and, and just make, make money, hire people, make a profit, uh, of course make a good product uh, and make an innovative product. But it's, it's really good. And I, I look back to being 30 years in business, and we now trade in over a hundred countries and uh... you know it's it's really important that you adopt to the slight cultural differences that are in in each of the countries including the united states the other thing i i often tell people that are intimidated to become an exporter you know you have to have people first of all i subscribe with the theory hire people smarter than you so my people, uh, and and this includes operating in the United States, Roy, have to have a PhD in shipping, international banking, government relations, and barriers, and in the United States, and this applies in Canada as well. As a as an entrepreneur, as an exporter, you're judged on how you overcome adversity, and uh, specifically. Um, we're going through with United States these NAFTA negotiations, and um, we're going to have to have a plan B on that situation.
0: Ron, I have about I have about 25 seconds. Okay. If if you had one piece of significant advice, one piece of advice to give Canada on negotiating on NAFTA, what would you what the, would that advice be?
7: Free trade is good. Protectionism doesn't work.
0: Okay. Listen and understand the cultural differences. Listen to what people tell you, what Americans tell you. And uh, there's profitability and there's success at the end of that particular road.
7: You said it, Roy. You'd make a good entrepreneur exporter.
0: I'm on it. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Ron Foxcroft, the chairman of Fox 40 Industries and Tradeport International.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML.
0: There's speculation that Bruce MacArthur, he's the alleged mass murderer in Toronto, been written about nationally, internationally, may be declared Canada's most prolific serial killer by the time it's all over and counted and, and prosecuted and taken care of judiciously. What's the experience when a serial killer sets uh, his or her mind on killing you? Holly Dunn and her boyfriend were attacked by Angel Maturino Resendez. He was known as the railroad killer in the United States. Uh, Resendez did murder Holly Dunn's boyfriend and left Holly for dead after raping, beating, and stabbing her. Her book is called Soul Survivor. She joins us on the Roy Green Show. Holly, thank you very much for taking the time, and uh, why go public with everything that's happened to you?
8: Thank you, Roy, for having me. Um, truly, I feel like um, I could—I had two choices. I could either crawl into a hole, or I could do something about what happened. Um, and I chose to do something. And so, going public was really a reason to go public. Was that I wanted the story to be right. I wanted the media to know the the correct story because so much was being written about what 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 happened. And so much of it was incorrect so at first i was i was going public to make sure that they got the story right um because i wanted i wanted it correct um and so that that was the first reason i went public but then also i realized that by going public i could begin to help others so really really a reason to go public for me was to start the pro start the process of helping others
0: when i first uh read about you and then knew we were going to be talking And uh, consider the fact that you've gone public, and I've worked with a lot of uh, victims, crime victims, organizations in Canada. My sense was that what you were doing was empowering people to uh, to take charge of their own lives again, to uh, to to be themselves again, to to uh, be strong again, and not just allow the person who victimized them. And some attacks are obviously much more egregious than others. But not allow the situation to control control them for the rest of their lives. All right,
8: right, and you know, I, I, if I can be a voice for other victims, I, I want to be. I want I want people to know that bad things can happen. That there's life after it does. That you know, you can go on and live a happy life when bad things happen. Um, I think that's a big theme in my book. Is you know that that it's it, it is the story of what happened to me, but it's also a story of Inspiration and you know hope. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's there's a hope that that is in my book that that I want I want people to have that hope too.
0: What were you doing? What were you and your boyfriend doing when you encountered this Angel Resendez?
8: Um, we were actually um, taking a walk. We were at a college party. We were both. I was 20. He was 21. Um, we were at the students at the University of Kentucky. And we were actually taking a walk um, near the railroad tracks, near where the party was. Um, and, and, you know, we were actually getting up to go back to the party. And he, this man approached us from behind an electrical box. He had been sitting there watching us the entire time we had been walking on the tracks.
0: And what can you tell us about what took place? I'm, there's a certain um, amount of hesitancy in my question, which you probably gathered.
8: Well, sure. No, no, no worries. I, you know, I'm used to talking about it, and I'm used to having um, pretty much any question you can imagine asked of me. So I don't, I don't mind answering. Um, so we, um, he tried to rob us. That's what, the first thing he asked was he wanted money. Um, we didn't have any, and we told him that. Um, he made us get down on our knees because Chris was pretty tall. He was six five, and this guy was only about five six. Um, so he, he had us get down on our knees, and he went through Chris's backpack. At that point, I didn't realize that he had a weapon. He had had a weapon on Chris. It was a knife or an ice pick, something sharp that he had on my boyfriend. Um, and so my boyfriend was complying with everything that he said, and I, I kind of didn't realize what was happening, you know. And, and I don't think we realized that our lives were even in danger. Um, that's you know he was going through Chris's backpack, and it was that thought of give the person who, who's who's um, who's robbing you anything they want, and they'll leave you alone. It was that thought of, you know, you throw your purse at them and they let you go. They leave you alone. Um, So, you know, that's what we were trying to do. We were offering him our car, our credit cards, our ATM cards. We were just offering him anything we could. Um, He just kept saying no to all of our offers. And he ended up tying us up and gagging us. Um, He hit my boyfriend with a 52-pound rock. Um, He came over to me. He um, raped me, stabbed me, um, beat me, tried to kill me. Uh, but did not kill me. I somehow got up to get help at a house about 200 yards away and um, he um, left me there. think he thought he had killed me and um, you know, I've that's what I've, I've been healing from, from that ever since. Um, and you know, it's, it, it is amazing to tell that story because it feels it, it was 20 years ago. So it, it has, it's, it feels now that, you know, I've come and that's what I focus on. I've come so far since that occurred that I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, that my life today, that I, I always say that I would never have hoped, I would never have wished for this to happen to anyone. I don't want anything like this to happen to anyone. But my life's passion now has, has, is because of what happened. I am able to do what I do today and, and live the life I'm able to live today and have the passion I have because this happened. So I'm really thankful for my second chance at
0: life. You know, I'm looking at a photograph of this Bruce MacArthur who uh, has been charged with multiple murders in uh, Toronto. And, uh, and, and it's the same sort of feeling that I got the first time I walked into a federal prison. And I've been in about six or seven of them uh, as a media person and also working on an advisory board for the federal minister of corrections um, or uh, public safety in Canada. And they look so normal. They, there's nothing that I suppose in, with some of them, their appearance would give away who they are. But with others, they look so absolutely normal. And I can see how people would become victims of uh, a killer by with, with, a, with, a, with an introduction to them where you have no – Immediate concerns. That wouldn't be the situation you and your boyfriend faced, but it would be what some other people would face. And there was uh, one one person who is thought to have been uh, was uh, a victim of uh, this, Bruce MacArthur, who said he felt like he was uh, like he was maybe just seconds away from being murdered. So, what, what's the uh, what's the message that comes out of Soul Survivor? What's the most fundamental message?
8: Well, I feel that it's. Again, I, I feel like there's two audiences. So I feel like there's an audience of for survivors because I seeked out books that were written by survivors in my healing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a message for survivors that is just a, that can hopefully that they could, could lead them to this book and they could maybe get further along in their healing. Um, and then, but then there's also a message for everyone else that it's just a story of inspiration and of you know hope and 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 happiness, my book is actually you know about happiness because in the end, my life the my second chance at life i've I've lived a very, very happy life. you're and a I wife you're a mother to, right i am i'm a wife, I'm a mother, and i you know I have an amazing family and amazing friends I have an amazing support system and i I credit my healing to that I credit my healing a lot to my support system i've had and still have an amazing support system. And I'm able to talk about what happened. I think being able to talk about what happened to you, anytime you are you have anything traumatic happen in your life, being able to talk about it helps it to lose its power over you. It helps mm-hmm. to lose, you lose, it loses the control it has over you when you can
1: talk about it. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: Holly Dunn is the author of Soul Survivor, and she is the sole survivor of an American serial killer who killed her boyfriend angel Maturino Resendiz, who was executed in Texas did uh, when he was executed was there any sense of of uh, relief did it uh, how did that affect you Holly
8: uh, there was great relief when he was executed uh, you know there is an it's not a rational feeling that you feel either or that I felt. That was you know, I always felt like he could come out and get me like he could get break out of prison and come and get me or somehow get out and come and get me um and I think that that was you know a feeling that I felt it was it it was just a a, a fear that I had uh and that went away when he was executed i I feel like justice was served, and I do feel like you know there is there it's it, it's helpful to in my healing to know that he's not in the world anymore.
0: How many people did he kill?
8: Um he's he's um accused of uh, it, or has been charged in fifteen murders. Um, and he's thought to have killed maybe possibly hundreds. they're They're not positive you know, they haven't identified all the people that he killed, um but he he had confessed and was a, was charged with fifteen murders before he was executed.
0: How did you recover? I'll ask you about the guilt question shortly, but how did you recover? From all of the things that were done to you, you were raped, you were stabbed, you were attacked with a rock, you were left for dead. Uh, how do you physically and emotionally recovered? How did you manage that?
8: Well, I think my family was by my side, um, you know, within hours after this occurred. Um, and I think, you know, I was I was treated very well in the hospital. I was, um, you know, not questioned by police except for the who, what, when, where, and why. They were I guess, somewhat gentle with me Um, because I was so physically injured. I think that, you know, I was treated a little differently than sometimes most rape victims are treated. Um, And so, you know, I, I was just treated well. I think that I had a good experience with police officers, with doctors, with nurses, with my family. And I think that all helped in my healing, Mm -hmm. uh, especially immediately. Um, I, you know, that's, that's a lot of things that'll, that's what a lot of victims don't have is the support of their family, their friends, um, you know, they, they're afraid they feel shame. Um, I didn't have those initial feelings because there was such a physical aspect of what happened to me. So I, in the beginning, I wasn't feeling that shame, you know, that comes along with, with rape that you feel like you've done something wrong. I, I felt like I had done absolutely nothing wrong and that this was just a terrible person. So I could put a lot of those bad feelings with him and to know that, it, you know, it wasn't my fault because, but I think that I knew that it wasn't my fault because so, such physical things had happened to me.
0: What about the question then of survivor guilt?
8: I definitely um, suffered from survivor's guilt. Um, I didn't talk to, my, my boyfriend that was killed, his name was Chris Meyer, and I did not talk to his parents until um, several months, well, maybe a few months after the attack. Um, And I, I, the reason I didn't talk to them was because of survivor's guilt. I felt terrible that I survived and that Chris didn't and that my parents were getting to, you know, have dinner with me and to be, you know, I was able to be at their house and be around them. And I felt guilty that Chris's parents were alone and they didn't have him anymore. And, you know, I felt guilty that his friends didn't have him anymore. It was, and then I, I felt an even greater guilt when, when he, he was seen at, when he was, it was known that he was, that my attacker was a serial killer. I felt an even greater guilt because I knew that there were so many victims and so many people that he killed. And I was the only one who lived. Um, it, it, it definitely was, you know, something that I had to work through. Uh, but I did feel survivor's guilt.
1: Have
0: you been able to really expel this, uh, Resendez from your life?
8: You know, I will always be healing. And I say that I say that today, I will always be healing from what he did in my life. But what I've been able to do, and, and I think what has been, you know, great in my healing was that I put all those bad feelings that I didn't want to feel. So I didn't want to feel the anger, the revenge, the hate, the, you know, just all those bad feelings that he caused. He caused all those things in my life. I was angry because he did this. I was, you know, revengeful. I wanted revenge because he had done this. It was all because of him. And so I put all those feelings I didn't want to be feeling, I put them with him. And so I was able to go on with my life and to say, I want to focus on the good. I want to focus on helping others on the good that has come from this. And I don't want to focus on all that bad that he caused. And so I kind of put that with him, and I let it go with him. Um, and, you know, I think that was just part of my healing, that I was able to let go of those feelings and to put them with him and to know that he caused them and that I could go on and live a happy life and that people wanted me to live a happy life. Um, and, you know, that that's, I think, been, been a key in, in my healing and where I've gotten to today.
0: You're a remarkable person. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you're giving a lot of people hope, people who find themselves living with the terrible situations they've had to endure and perhaps haven't been able to escape the impact or, or deal with the impact. Um, holly Dunn's book is Soul Survivor. You can reach her. Her email address is holly at com. That's Dunn, D-U-N-N, holly at hollykdunn.com, and you can book her for speaking engagements. Thank you so much for joining us, Holly.
8: Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it.
0: All the very best to you. There's Holly Dunn. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML.